Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. In the last decade or so, a lot of attention has been brought to the havoc wreaked by drunk driving. But in 2020, 11,654 people died in alcohol-impaired traffic crashes nationwide. And the numbers aren't declining. They're going up. Here in Mecklenburg County, the number of people killed in drunk driving crashes has increased steadily over the last 10 years. But while incidents have risen, the number of people convicted for DWI has plummeted. Worse, Mecklenburg has the fewest DWI convictions in the state based on population. By a long shot, no other county comes close. We average 38 convictions per 100,000 people. Wake County has nearly four times as many. The state as a whole has nearly six times as many. It's something WFAE's Steve Harrison has been looking into and reporting on for a while, so we wanted to hear more about what he's discovered. He joins us this hour along with Mecklenburg County District Attorney Spencer Merriweather. Thank you both for being here. Welcome back, Spencer. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Good to be here. You too, Steve. And we wanted to get the DA's point of view on why the legal system isn't keeping pace. And we've also invited Stephen Burrett to share what he knows about drunk driving trends here and around the country. He is regional executive director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving for North and South Carolina. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thanks. And Steve Harrison, I'm going to begin with you because you report that in 2013, more than 2,000 people were convicted of DWI in Mecklenburg. But when you chart those numbers on a graph from 2013 to 2021, it is a steady line down to 184 convictions in uh, 2021. That's nearly a decline of 80%, 80%. Is that because the legal system can't get convictions or because of some other reason? So I think there's a lot of factors going on. Um, I think it's important to kind of start with the fact that if you look at across the nation and across the state of North Carolina, um, the number of people arrested and convicted for DWI is also going down. So that is, uh, and I think there's a lot we can talk about as to why that is. So there's kind of an overall trend where you're seeing fewer people arrested, but then here's the big but. But in Mecklenburg County, that trend is really heightened or exaggerated. Um, we've gone down at a much, much faster rate than the state of North Carolina and the country. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, a big one, it starts, of course, on the law enforcement side in terms of, of how many people are being arrested and charged with DWI. We've seen in Mecklenburg County uh, one of the biggest drops in the state over the last 10 years. And then, you know, and then and then on, on the, the conviction side, I mean, then we kind of keep going down and there's other factors for that. We went through COVID and violent crime, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but you know, Mike, I mean, like you said, I think the key line is kind of no one else is even close. We are kind of out on a bit of an island in terms of uh, our relationship with the rest of the state, in terms of how many people are convicted. We are, uh, like you said, no one is even close. Let me throw some of those numbers back out, because as I said in the beginning, I think from 2019 to 2022, Mecklenburg County had 38 DWI convictions per 100,000 people, while Wake County, which is, I think, as big as we are, maybe slightly larger and certainly growing as fast, 
had 143, Gaston County 256, Cabarrus County 278. I was just wondering, is there a correlation between the number of people convicted and the number of people arrested, or a correlation between the number of people convicted and the number of people actually driving while under the influence, Steve? Do we know the answer to that question? So in terms of the latter, we don't know because we don't know how many people are actually driving drunk, right? I mean, that's just kind of impossible to know, um, you know, from except from the law enforcement side. Now, there are some theories, and I think Stephen uh, can talk about this too, that, that, you know, probably there may be fewer people driving drunk compared to say 30 years ago. I mean, I'm, I remember in the eighties and the nineties, the big mad campaigns about drunk driving that were really effective. And, you know, there was a, um, I mean, those were just a constant growing up. And, and so I I think societally we've moved away from, there is a, a stigma now toward drinking and driving, but clearly based on, if you look at the national trends in terms of the number of people killed in alcohol-related crashes and the number of people killed here in Mecklenburg County, which is going up, that, that it's not a problem that is going away or has gone away. So, um, yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on there. Um, attitudes have changed, but not nearly enough. I'll, I'll get Stephen Bird's uh, reflections on what you just talked about in a second, but I want to bring Spencer Merriweather into the conversation. He's the Mecklenburg County District Attorney. Uh, and Steve uh, quotes uh, Bill Powers. He's an attorney who has represented DWI drivers and their victims for 30 years, and he characterized the numbers I just shared with everybody as unfathomable. He said that they shock the conscience. Spencer, do you agree with that? I've been hearing that from Bill Powers for probably the better part of about five years. I know that it hits the bottom line of every defense attorney in our community when uh, the number of driving while impaired arrests go down. Um, What I do agree with is that clearly it has. Um, You know this isn't my first job, uh, Mike. Uh, My first job was that of assistant district attorney, and I started that job in 2007. Uh, And I can tell you from the day that I started in this office, this was one that took driving while impaired cases extremely seriously and still does. Uh, As people progress through this office, they end up on our homicide unit, which is the case that handles vehicular homicides where people have been driving drunk and kill people. Um, So as an office, we take this extremely seriously. But the X factor is not uh, what goes on in this office. Obviously, we prosecute the cases that come in the door, and we have seen that significantly decline. I'm happy to talk uh, at length about what I believe some of those reasons might be. But as evident in what Steve, not only in his article, but also in what he just told you, there's a lot that's speculative here. Uh, but I hope we, we do have an opportunity to go into it. So we will go into that. But what I'm hearing you say is that the reason prosecutions have declined is because arrests have declined. Right. And there you can attribute that to not some policy decisions. I mean, let's think about what's going on in the, since 2016. Uh, the type of interactions that law enforcement, particularly in our urban communities, and I think it's important uh, to distinguish uh, large cities from what goes on in suburban areas. Uh, Mecklenburg County, we talk about Mecklenburg County versus Wake County, but really we should be talking about Charlotte, which is a community of almost 900,000 people with a suburban community of about 200,000 around it. Compare that with Raleigh, which is a community of 460,000 people, with about a suburban community of 700,000 around it. The way people travel, 
the way people park when they go for entertainment is entirely different uh, here versus there. You think about what, what South End looks like or has looked like uh, five years ago versus now, or, or Loso, if you can even know what that means, or Noda or all those places and how they've developed and try to find a place to park. You can't do it. And so people do rely on rideshare here in a way that uh, they don't know the places. To say nothing of the fact that if you try to get an Uber or Lyft in Robinson County or in Dare County or in all these other counties, you're going to have a hard time, which is why comparing what goes on in Mecklenburg County to some of those over, over those some other jurisdictions, it's just like comparing apples and oranges. So what I just heard is and I didn't know this is that some of the things we're going to talk about as potential solutions may already be in place here, which is partly why. There are fewer drunk driving convictions because there are fewer arrests, and that could be partly because people are using rideshare opportunities as opposed to driving while drunk. All of that is correct. That's a lot of it. But okay. there's, there are a multitude of factors that go into this, including changes in strategy uh, in public safety. Okay. Uh, uh, Stephen Burr is with us. He's the regional executive director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving for North and South Carolina. I want to go back to something that Steve mentioned a second ago, and that is the number of uh, driving under the influence uh, situations has declined in 30 years. Is, is that happening nationwide? Are people less likely to drive drunk because there's a societal shame attached to it now? Thanks, sure. So to boil down what I would call, you know, the biggest national trends, and Steve was correct to say that, you know, what happens in North Carolina is is largely a mirror uh, of the nation, while slightly worse. Same with South Carolina. It's the the trends are the same, but those states start from a worse place and they and they continue in a worse place. But yeah, since MAD was founded in 1980, uh, you know, if you look at it now, drunk driving deaths are half of what they used to be. I mean, that's that's an astounding change over you know 43 years or so. But we see that most of that change took place in that first 30, 33 years. The last 10 years or so, we're seeing things plateau. And then really around COVID times, we're starting to see traffic fatalities and impaired driving fatalities jump sharply up again, which is just heartbreaking after decades of success to ever think that we're losing ground in this um, you know, uh, this issue where life and death truly is an issue. So, uh, so yes, but, you know, North Carolina is a state with the fourth number highest of drunk driving deaths while being ninth in population. It just, some of the numbers for both the Carolinas just don't add up. These are truly areas that um, have an exceptionally high impaired driving problem. We don't always have the luxury of getting down to the, to the county and the city level as, as Spencer was kind of talking about the difference between the apples and oranges, but we certainly know when we look at North Carolina, there's a massive problem and there's some signs that it's slightly getting worse. And obviously that means real lives because we, we get to know those people. So it's very real to us. And, and how do the two Carolinas compare again? Yeah, both, both, both. Uh, re, I, I maybe the toughest job in terms of the the numbers of all my colleagues in the state. You know, South Carolina, tenth most de, uh, drunk driving fatalities, twenty third in population. Again, North Carolina, fourth most, while being ninth in population. Just from a per population rate, the Carolinas are terrible. Maybe South Carolina even a little bit worse than North Carolina, but the two the two Carolinas really have a major uphill battle. A lot of things changed as a result of the pandemic, and a lot of things seem to revert back. So we, we regressed in a lot of things, not just education. And you, as you pointed out, that, that numbers of drunk driving incidences and fatalities due to drunk driving has increased post-pandemic after years of decline. How do you explain that? Do you have an explanation for that, Stephen? 
Yeah, certainly it's been a much discussed topic. It, it seems if I can kind of pick out a consensus from the smartest people I've had talking about, the general agreement seems to be just when things kind of went into lockdown and the roads got, you know, traffic got more sparse, that also meant there was less law enforcement out there doing what they're doing. So people were, there was less traffic, less officers, and people just reverted to some bad habits. They could felt like they could go as fast as they want and drive how they want. And sadly, once things kind of got back to normal, those behaviors seem to have continued. So th there may be other factors, and I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure those things out, but um, but it's been disturbing to watch these numbers. Uh, just to give a quick one, 2021, South Carolina, most traffic deaths on our roads in any year ever. That is just unacceptable. North Carolina, 15, 20 year highs in terms of traffic fatalities in 2021. Like just to see we're losing ground and so many lives are being lost is just uh, unacceptable. Spencer. One of the things that we're seeing, not just in the area of driving while impaired cases, but really across every single facet of crime that comes through our office is the number of people who've been self-medicating since, uh, since COVID. Uh, and so when you see people who are, uh, an increasing number of people who are relying on substances, be it alcohol or some other sub control substances, uh, it doesn't surprise me that a fraction of those getting behind the wheel of a car. Uh, and I think uh, all of the mental health uh, focus that we have seen since uh, the onset of the pandemic, um, we're seeing some of that borne out in the statistics that we have before us today. Uh, Steve also reports, Steve Harrison from WFAE also reports that the number of uh, traffic fatalities has been rising for the last decade. And the number of DWI-related fatalities has also increased in the last three years, even as the number of alcohol-related crashes has declined here in Mecklenburg County. And I want to get some more information about that, Steve, when we come back. Also, you said the total number of alcohol-related traffic fatalities is outpacing the county's increase in population. So a lot of... Uh, comparative numbers here, which we'll get into when we come back with WFAE Steve Harrison, Stephen Bird for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and Spencer Merriweather, the district attorney for Mecklenburg County. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about uh, drunk driving in Mecklenburg County and the number of arrests and convictions for drunk driving having declined precipitously over the last several years. Steve Harrison's been reporting on this in stories that you can uh, go to our website, WFAE.org, and read or listen to. Spencer Merriweather is also with us this morning. He's the district attorney for Mecklenburg County, and Stephen Bird is regional executive director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving for North and South Carolina. Steve, it's really difficult to talk about uh, numbers, particularly when they conflict or you have to compare and contrast uh, trend lines on the radio because you can't see it. But let's try to do this a little bit. You say that the number of traffic fatalities has been rising in the last decades, along with the number of DWI-related traffic fatalities. But the number of alcohol-related crashes in Mecklenburg has declined. So explain that. Yeah, so the number of alcohol-related crashes has kind of, I mean, declined. It's kind of bounced around and stayed basically steady. Some years it's up, some years it's down. Um, 
but the but very clearly there's a very clear trend on alcohol related crash deaths in this county and they are clearly going up i mean if you go back a decade ago and you look at a three-year average or four-year average they were about 20 fatalities and it's just been kind of slowly going up um i think now we're about you know tend to be about 45 alcohol related deaths a year um you know as, as steven said earlier uh some of that may be pushed by the pandemic um, 2020, we had 53 deaths in Mecklenburg County. That was the year when the roads were wide open. And as Spencer said, a lot of people were, you know, I think he said kind of self-medicating, um, which is a, you know, so you have a, this combination of, um, of people perhaps drinking more and uh, less law enforcement, less traffic, but, but clearly the alcohol-related deaths, it's increasing here and it's increasing at a rate that goes a little bit faster than our population growth. Yeah, I was going to get to that. It's, it's growing faster than the population is growing, and it's growing faster than the number of miles people are driving. That figure, is that an individual figure, or is that an accumulative figure of everybody driving in Mecklenburg County? And could that be because of some outliers who drove recklessly when very few people were driving during the pandemic? So it's a cumulative total uh, VMT, you know, vehicle miles traveled, you know, in the billions of miles every year. Um, and, and yeah, I think the, the 2020, 2021 period, you know, the world was turned upside down, right? So we have a lot of kind of crazy things happening, but this trend of, of more people dying in alcohol related crashes was, was kind of in play before then you saw the numbers going up, um, even before COVID. So, um, so clearly I think there was, there was something going on, um, in Mecklenburg County. And, uh, and, and so even when you have, I think more people using rideshare, uh, you have more transit being built. So these are good things that are keeping people from drinking and driving. But even with those things, you still had more people dying. Um, and you know, and that was a, a disturbing, disturbing trend. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, uh, you've been on this program many times in the past, and almost every time that we've, you've been on, we've talked about the underfunded court system that we have in Mecklenburg County and the resultant backlog of cases and prosecutors having to make decisions about who to prosecute and what to prosecute, given the fact that not everything is going to get through the court in a timely manner. How big a role is that playing in all of this? In this in particular, obviously all of us would want to be uh, getting our cases to trial as quickly as possible. Um, but quite frankly, uh, we don't have a lot of elasticity in uh, the number of prosecutors uh, within our office because of the rise in violent crime that we've seen. Uh, I know that in the area of violent crime, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. And again, people like to compare Wake and Mecklenburg County. Uh, Wake just experienced their, uh, their deadliest year in uh, violent crime and homicide. Uh, last year with 49 homicides. That's 49 homicides where you know that in the last five years, uh, we have averaged around 95. A couple of those years, we've crossed 100 people who have lost their life uh, to violent crime. Um, those violent crime cases are cumbersome. Uh, we have about the same number of prosecutors handling violent crime as we did about you know 10 years ago. Uh, and so, without any sort of increase uh, to, you know, increase in resources from the state to uh, kind of make up the difference, uh, we are struggling. Uh, and this work has become harder. 
Uh, and uh, there are so many different complexities that have been added to this work, and yet all of our resources spent on it stay the same. Uh, Mecklenburg uh, County's Deputy DA, Bruce Lilly, told Steve Harrison uh, it's going to take years to get the court system back to a complete reset following the pandemic, in which the courts were shut down for a long, long time long time. Uh, The DA's office dismissed 25,000 cases last fall because of a court backlog. And you're looking, I'm told, to dismiss another 100,000 low-level cases. Would DWIs fall into that low-level category? Absolutely not. I also want to make a, uh, use this as an opportunity to correct something that was in Steve's story, uh, that 400 uh, cases were uh, dismissed uh, involving people who had their license revoked because of impaired driving. Um, as you probably have heard, uh, there was a huge computer error from the uh, administrative office of the courts, uh, which dismissed a whole lot of cases in error. We have since reinstated a lot of those cases. So, um, But this office has never authorized uh, the, the dismissal of DWIs nor uh, license revocation tickets related to impaired driving. Uh, and so... Um- I was just going to say, I think, and and I think the the four hundred or so, uh, the ones that were, those cases came from that kind of earlier database, the twenty five thousand cases from the fall of two thousand twenty two, uh, and the the hundred the database of a hundred thousand dismissed cases is so you know as you know is so messed up with the the errors from the AOC that that uh, none of those cases came from those. Um, so I think I there better, were some. Yeah, I'm just going to again reiterate. This office has never authorized the dismissal of those types of cases. Okay. Um, so in this, but and, and in fact, in the summer of 2021, the DA's office spent 10 weeks focusing on DWIs. There were 3,000 cases pending at the time. Uh, how, how were you able to devote so much court time just to DWIs, and what was the result of that? You say so much court time, Mike, but usually we were uh, used to operating with either two or three courtrooms. And by the way, that's three fewer than what they have in Raleigh to, to deal with on a daily, on a daily basis. Um, but we only had a single courtroom uh, through the bulk of COVID. And so for me, there were two issue areas that I said uh, are the most important misdemeanor cases to, uh, to spend our time on because we realized how quickly they can go from misdemeanors to deaths. And one is domestic violence, and the second one is driving while impaired cases. And so we we pleaded with our judges uh, to try to make sure that we created a space for us to try those cases, and luckily they did. So when I hear the kind of statistics like 154 uh, convictions, I know those 154 convictions uh, within 2021 were hard-earned because we had to push everything we could through such limited resources because of COVID. Uh, if you got results from that, is there any way to do that on a regular basis? Say every quarter, spend X amount of time exclusively on DWIs, and do you think that would be productive? For the times that I know that in Wake County they do have a driving while impaired court, but I think it's important to note that for the last 20 years in Mecklenburg County, because I've served under two other uh, district attorneys myself, uh, we have never had a courtroom that was solely dedicated to driving while impaired cases. However, Within all of our traffic trial courts, everyone knows that driving while impaired cases are the big enchilada. They are the top priority within our traffic cases. So everything sort of shuts down when you touch one of those cases. With our new chief district court judge, we've created a new case management plan, which 
was meant to sort of make things run a little bit more efficiently. And so now we have what's referred to as complex cases that are scheduled on two, uh, two weeks out of a month uh, to try to make sure that there are no delays. So that means driving while impaired cases are still the big enchilada. We have speed competition cases, and Lord knows after the news of the last couple of weeks about that sort of thing going on in Uptown Charlotte, that's an important thing for us, as well as extremely high excessive speeds of uh, over 100. Those are the three things that we channel in that courtroom. I believe having a courtroom, knowing that we don't have the six that Wake has, having the three uh, allows all of our DAs to be able to touch as many driving while impaired cases as possible. That's a strategy that worked in 2007 when I started. That's a strategy that I still believe in today. Stephen, the national president of Mothers Against Drunk Driving happens to be, I think, a 24-year-old television journalist who was the victim of a drunk driving incident on her way to work in the wee small hours of the morning. She was severely injured. I think she's okay now. But she says that nationwide, someone is killed by a drunk driver in America every 45 minutes. I am math challenged, but if I did the math correctly, that is 32 people every 24 hours or 224 people every week. If those numbers are close to being correct, why hasn't there been greater outrage over this? That's an airplane a week. It is. It, it, they're shocking numbers. Yeah. So based the last year, which we have good, <clears throat> solid numbers for the entire country, 2020, 11,600 people killed. And again, that's well up from what it was the year before and, and the year before that. So yeah, we're, you know, that we that's what we try to do. We try to make sure um you know, the, 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 the details are always fascinating to listen to about, you know, the resources and community community and processes that can work things. You know, we try not to Monday morning quarterback that too much. People within the system obviously really know how best. Our job, obviously, is to keep eyes on the prize, which is this is tragic. And you can never fully even communicate just how devastating this is to a family and a community when these crashes occur. There's There is no warning. There are no chances to say goodbye. There violent and traumatic and and somebody's to blame when all this you know just upends people's lives no degree we will continue to tell those stories just from the first mother in 1980 that you know lost her teenage daughter and began this entire thing that became mad the stories still today have those power and so we'll just you know keep that focused and and i do want to say i appreciate uh, you know something that spencer said so much is the connection between the misdemeanor dwi case and what happens and the potential ultimate tragedies that happen that connection, I don't know that we've done enough, you know, good job making the connection between those things, but it's awful and terrible to ever lose some to an impaired driver. But when you have those situations where then you go and find out the person had been arrested three, four or five times before, uh, maybe some convictions, maybe a lot of them never ended up as convictions. Right. And you have to try to just acknowledge the fact the system failed to a large degree. And so anything we can do to lock down and treat those first offense cases as seriously as they are, we believe is a life-saving step. Steve. Yeah, I wanted to say, I think what's what to me is interesting about DWI is that is it it's a very serious offense, but it's one that um, from a law enforcement perspective, it, it, to kind of find DWIs and, and arrest people for DWIs, it it relies on in a way on law enforcement that goes after small offenses. 
I guess what I'm saying is in Charlotte, in Mecklenburg County in Charlotte, there's been a real change in policing over the last decade. The number of arrests are way down. The number of citations are way down. Police do not do nearly as much proactive policing, as we call it, where um, if someone makes an improper lane change, they get pulled over. Expired registration, they get pulled over. I, I want to get to that in a second. But before we do that, I, I want to bring it down to the human level because Tess Rowland is the national president of MAD. She's that 24-year-old television journalist who became president as a result of her accident. She wanted to do something. She said she became more involved in MAD because, not only because she's a victim, but because she wanted to become a voice for the voiceless, the people who are killed. They can't have a voice because they are no longer with us. In one of your stories, Steve... You spoke with Lynn Sherrill, who lost four family members in 2020 to a drunk driver. My only child, Matthew, he was 35, almost 35 at the time. His wife, Andrea, and my two granddaughters, who were 9 and 12-year-old at the time, um, they were all killed instantly um, by the actions of what the drunk driver did. And they were totally crushed. There was no... Nothing they could do in their big Tahoe. There was just nothing. So the only good thing is they died instantly. That driver killed someone else in another crash. He's now serving 20 years in prison. He killed, I think, five people. And a highway patrolman was injured investigating that, those accidents. He was injured during the investigation. In tw is 20 years a normal sentence for killing people for DWI? I'm not sure. Spencer, go ahead and ask the answer that yeah. question. Answer that question. Um, it, it can be. Uh, there are a lot of, as you know, there are a lot of different gradations of sentencing that go into specific elements being made, what it is that you can prove uh, uh, at a particular time. Uh, for instance, sentencing may be aggravated if someone has a history of uh, driving while impaired in their background. Um, I, but, you know, there are a lot of different circumstances that go into that. But 20 years can be it can be uh, far less than Well, that. Alex Murdoch just got uh, two consecutive or life sentences for killing his uh, son and his wife. Uh, I, I suppose you could say there was evil intent in that, but if you get behind the wheel intoxicated and kill five people, isn't that the same thing? The, usually the driving while impaired cases will top out at what's referred to as second-degree murder. Um, Should they? Uh, well, I believe that you do. I mean, this is we can go to law school on this, Mike, if you'd like. But uh, <laughs> typically, uh, the type of intent that you need uh, usually is going to fall short of first degree murder. Okay. Um, that's referred to as a depraved heart. Like you should have really known better. You're risking people's lives in the way that you said, get behind the wheel of a car after driving drunk. After, uh, being so getting back to changing uh, police uh, focus, uh, Steve, uh, CMPD data that you reviewed shows that CMPD arrests and citations have dropped by more than half since 2009, even as the city's population grew by 20 percent. And when you talk to CMPD officer Daniel Redford, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, the reason he gave was a little unsettling. And it would not surprise me to know that there are officers who are discouraged from doing it. They may still investigate and say, all right, this guy's drunk, but instead of arresting them, say, hey, I'm either going to take you home or I'm going to have you um, call a cab, call somebody to come and pick you up. Did he explain why an officer would choose those other options? Yeah, he did. And he said that DWI cases have become, uh, and, and I know that 
that the district attorney's office feels this way on the prosecuting end. It's very complicated to to, to prosecute them. It's a lot of time. It, it is a very detailed case. And, and from the policing angle, it's the same thing. A tremendous amount of paperwork, often a number of court appearances. And, um, you know, there is a, right now in, in Charlotte, there is a sense that on the judicial side at the courthouse, a lot of police officers feel that they do not have, that kind of the odds are stacked against them in terms of, uh, of uh, in terms of things like bio, you know, bail policy, things they feel very frustrated, and they're saying, "Look, you know, some of this stuff is not worth our time." And it's interesting listening to those comments. It kind of struck me what what the officer said. It almost was like a reverted back to say the 1960s when someone drove mm. drunk. You may say, "Ah, right, just go home. We'll call you a cab." You know. Yeah. Uh, what I'm hearing you say, and we'll talk about this when we come back, is that there are a lot of roadblocks that the police see, and they just throw up their hands and say, why bother? We'll come back in a moment at Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about DWI prosecutions in Mecklenburg County with the District Attorney of Mecklenburg County, Spencer Merriweather. Stephen Burrett is here. He's Regional Director of Mothers Against Drunk Driving for North and South Carolina. And WFAE Steve Harrison, who has done a series of stories on this, is also with us. You can hear his stories or read them or both on our website at WFAE.org. Spencer, CMPD Officer Daniel Redford made this speculation as to one reason why officers may choose not to charge someone that they catch while driving while impaired. They're probably just second-guessing whether or not they really want to go through the hassle of, of the prosecution. So do you understand that comment? Does it concern you that that figures into an officer's thought process? What I'll tell you is that, um, you know, use some numbers as background, uh, looking at this fiscal year, um, when you compare us to Wake County, uh, the number of guilty verdicts that we have uh, is about the same uh, within about 10 of what they've got in Wake County. Uh, the number of not guilties is within about five of what they got in Wake County. The number of dismissals uh, that we have, uh, we have about 700 dismissals in Mecklenburg County to about 250 dismissals uh, in Wake County. Uh, most, almost most of our dismissals that uh, in Mecklenburg County are when officers uh, don't show up to court. There's a variety of reasons why that happens. One of them, and the biggest one, is when a single officer uh, resigns. Uh, typically, the people who do, do, do DWI enforcement are going to be the people who um, have that as an area of focus, have the most cases, and when they resign or when they move uh, to other places, other jurisdictions, all their cases go with them. We can no longer proceed on those cases. That's a bad development for us. Hmm. Um, but another thing, to Dan's point, uh, is, you know, there's 1,500 guilty pleas in Wake County as opposed to our 600 guilty pleas. Um, now, that means that there are reasons why in Wake County people see a reason to go ahead and plead guilty, whereas in, Wake, in, in Mecklenburg County they want to fight it out. Um, that's because DWIs tend to take two hours longer here uh, than they do because of all of the motions that really are considered here that in other counties in North Carolina they would never consider. Um, now, some of that may be good. That's what people want. We want to make well, sure. Who, that ma who, who made that decision? Who, who set it up that way? Why? No, on individual cases, for instance, uh, judges may have a more careful uh, consideration of the Fourth Amendment uh, issues that come up. 
Uh, there's something called a knoll motion that we have in Mecklenburg County. Uh, that really is applicable all across the state. It's just that Mecklenburg County, County happens to be one of the only places in the state that uh, where judges actually take it all that seriously. Um, basically means that you've been kept in custody too long when you actually got drunk and got pulled over, um, that they believe that um, you weren't released in time enough for you to go ahead and be able to defend yourself and start to work on a defense uh, in your case. Uh, and so we have entire motions about that in uh, in Mecklenburg County that they hardly ever have in Wake County. Well, Those that ex- things harder. That that explains, I guess, uh, one, what your assistant DA told uh, uh, Steve Harrison that DWI cases have become harder to prosecute here, and that the factors leading to making prosecution even more difficult. It also lengthens the time that prosecution takes in an already crowded document or docket, rather. Uh, Steve reports also that CMPD Sergeant Bernie Ribel, I hope that's how you say his name, who leads the department's seven-person DWI task force, told him the department has been stretched thin. Officers have not been specifically tasked with finding drunk drivers, and there has been a shift in recent years away from proactive policing, pulling people over for things like expired tags or broken taillights or improper lane changes, etc. From what you know, is that playing a major role in the decline in arrests? I mean, I would assume so. I mean, I I have to believe, I know that there are, um, that again, over the last six, seven years, um, quite frankly, when uh, most of the nation has been focused and applied more scrutiny to policing, particularly in our cities, um, we have seen that number steadily decline. Uh, When uh, Steve today makes the point that um, a lot of times driving while impaired cases are different because of they start with these things and all of a sudden you don't have as many of these sorts of stops, then yes, you're going to see that go down. It's also true, and I think we covered this in a second story, Uh, that we used to have a lot more uh, sort of licensed checkpoints. And when you see those things start to go down, uh, that accounted for a significant fraction of cases. And that's where I was going next. Uh, Stephen Burrett, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, advocates for high visibility law enforcement when it comes to this. And by that you mean, I believe, sobriety checkpoints. Do you have numbers showing how much that helps? Well, th- there's a mountain of research, uh, you know, out there to make the connection between high visibility enforcement and lives being saved with uh, drunk driving specifically. Uh, I think the, the most typical number I've seen is, you know, communities that have high activity with public safety checkpoint programs can have reductions in DUIs up to 20%. So we consider, I consider it a part of my, literally my job to go around, you know, to both states and, and just praise and thank the officers that do persevere through all these uh, challenges that we have. One of the most special nights we have of the year is when we have a law enforcement recognition ceremony where we get to award and recognize the best of the best who, who do their best through all these difficult circumstances and, and realize the value of high visibility enforcement. Because again, you can never fully measure this problem by arrest. It's always about crashes. It's about fatalities. That's always going to be the ultimate measure. And when you can have people who are going to make sure that they do whatever it takes no matter what happens with the arrest, um, but they're just working hard to make sure those things happen. That's why we call them our heroes and we do everything we can to keep them motivated and feel appreciated for the work that they put in because it saves lives. The city has signed on to this international program called Vision Zero, which is a goal to, has a goal to reduce traffic fatalities to zero 
<laughs> by 2030. At a recent council meeting, Mayor Lyles asked the council to accept a $188,000 state grant for CMPD's DWI task force, but several council members were skeptical, including Mayor Pro Tem uh, Braxton Winston, who said the city should focus on better street design and expanding transit when trying to reduce DWIs. Our mobility plan and, and the, the investments that need to be made in, in our neighborhoods are so important, right? Honestly, if you, one way you cut down on drunk driving is if you don't have people driving to drink and, and they're using alternate modes of transportation. So I, I think that is uh, something that is more directly in our purview. Spencer, is that the answer? Getting inebriated people to call an Uber or ride the Lynx Blue Line? Is that viewpoint helpful to law enforcement the court system, or to the goal of reducing the number of DWIs? In my estimation, I think in many ways, whether the people meant to or not, they've sort of achieved that for the reasons that I've articulated earlier. Uh, in Raleigh, uh, maybe they've got Glenwood South where it's really hard to park. And so uh, otherwise, and when you're going from Raleigh to Cary or wherever else, um, people don't have uh, the sort of transportation options at their disposal that maybe they have here. Um, like I said, you go to Noda, Loso, South End, all these other places, and uh, they uh, pretty much know it's a hassle to park, so they've got to come up with other options. Um, so I think that what you know the Mayor Pro Tem was speaking of, that in many ways has already been achieved. Um, I do think that every single dollar that we spend on education uh, in the area of uh, for uh, driving while impaired cases, on uh, alcohol education, uh, is important. Um, I think that uh, emphasizing that, you know, certainly with all court system actors and criminal justice system actors, including law enforcement, is important. Um, reminding people uh, that this is, even though you may not be hearing about it as much, um, this is still a significant issue. I, Lord knows my phone wakes, wakes up with particular alerts uh, from our local law enforcement about every single vehicular homicide that occurs in this community. And it is devastating because I know that with uh, in weeks, Members of my staff will have to sit down with the family and begin a three-year journey, at least with them, uh, in understanding uh, what it's like to get justice uh, upon that kind of loss. So, uh, like I said, there, there can't be uh, enough of an investment in that area. Uh, MAD suggests, Stephen, public transportation, and they suggest Uber and Lyft as alternatives uh, for people who are going to go out and imbibe and need a, a way home as opposed to driving themselves. But if someone is so inebriated that they cannot safely operate a motor vehicle, are they in a state of mind to be wise enough to hop on the bus or the links or call an Uber or Lyft? Yeah, planning ahead really is the number one key. If if you and if one of our new initiatives is called Decide to Ride, with the basic concept, if you don't drive there, you can't drive home. So you know, planning ahead, taking taking public transportation or an Uber or rideshare before you go out, so you won't come home. And ultimately, you know, I think technology is going to be the biggest uh, driver of this. Uh, we had maybe our our largest success as an organization in our history by having something put into that 2021 <clears throat> infrastructure bill that within the next five, <clears throat> five years, 
cars rolling off the line in this country are going to have impaired driving prevention technology that already exists in some vehicles. Well, I was going to, I, I was going to ask yeah. about, about that. Cause I think what, what is it? 2026 is when they want to have that mandated in all new cars, but the fleet of cars takes a, almost a generation to turn right. over before everybody has one of those in their car. Are they going to mandate retrofitting cars? And if they don't, will it have any significant impact in our lifetimes? Uh, unlikely they will do any retrofitting. And so, yes, when ultimately all cars on the road have this, there could be 9,000 plus less impaired driving deaths in this country, which is the vast majority of them. So the light is there at the end of the tunnel, but you're exactly right. I say all the time, we cannot be patient and wait for those type of things to happen. And, and similarly, we're all for better road design and we're all for all sorts of other things, but we can't be patient, wait for those things. People well, are going to die tonight. Let, let me so, let me ask about that, because one of the things I think that Braxton Winston brought up in terms of uh, the, 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 the incidents that we, we've had of people doing donuts in the in the intersection, wheelies in the intersections, is that we haven't designed our roads properly. We encourage that kind of activity by our road design. I think he mentioned putting speed pumps on these major thoroughfares. Is road design the answer to drunk driving? Come on. It, you know, perhaps over the long run, a meaningful, How? but small difference. How? Yes, it's, it's How? engineering, it's enforcement. I'm going to ask again. Hold on. Yeah. Stop. Okay. <laughs> How? Well, there are certain types of, you know, when people make driving mistakes, there can be, you know, like roundabouts. When people make mistakes, they, they tend to have, you know, slighter collisions than head-on T-bone intersections. I mean, those things can matter. But yes, by degree, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you where you're going. Okay. I'd rather have well-trained, equipped, passionate officers on the road tonight looking for impaired drivers than banking on road designs that will take a lot of money and a long time to happen. But over the long term, those things can save a lot of lives. Let's do all of those things. I don't think it's a it's a choice. Okay, Steve Harrison, the goal for Vision Zero, which is something the city has signed on to, is to have no traffic fatalities by 2030. It's 2023. That's seven years away. Uh, how many of those fatalities can be attributed right now to drunk driving uh, or driving while impaired? And is the answer... Is there a recommendation in that vision plan on how we get there with regard to drunk driving? So I, and right in front of me, I just have the numbers from Mecklenburg County, whereas the number of alcohol-related deaths, it's about 45%, I think. Uh, so I don't have the numbers for the city of Charlotte. I think they're probably very similar. Um, you know, I remember when Vision Zero first was talked about maybe a decade ago and the idea of 2030, it, it at the time seemed kind of like a big reach, right? And now that you just said, Mike, we're seven years away, um, you know, goodness, we will not get there. Uh, that's not gonna happen. And, um, you know, I think the idea of, of some of these things you talked about, like better street design, I think those are really important, but the scale of the problem is just so enormous. I think the city has been working for the last 20 years to kind of like adjust streets and redesign some streets and retrofit them. They've done about 21, 25 miles. You know, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket. And so we are, you know, and you're never going to redesign Interstate 77, Interstate 45. I mean, that's just not gonna happen. Um, before we run out of time, and we're almost out of time, I, there's another area of concern that MAD has that perhaps we should all have, and that is drugged driving as more states legalize marijuana and uh, as more people use 
marijuana as a result or other drugs other than alcohol, which is also a drug. Are there any statistics to show how much of a problem that is on the roads? Stephen. The data when it comes to drug driving are a mess. Um, it, there's really just no accurate data to compare to what we have for alcohol related. A lot of that is because many people who are on drugs are drinking too. And any likely officer, you know, when they're investigating, when they get a, a good BAC reading, uh, they're going to not go and also test for impaired driving so uh, or drugs that may be in the system as well. So the numbers just don't line up. Still, alcohol-related impact on the roads is the highest, but un- undoubtedly drug driving is increasing. And is it, is it as dangerous? They're, they're trickier cases, but we have to keep our eye on that. From sure. your experience, is it as dangerous to drive while under the influence of a, of a drug other than alcohol? As it is to oh, drive sure. under the influence yeah, the, of alcohol. The substance, the in our opinion, doesn't matter. You know, impaired driving, impaired driving, regardless of whether it's alcohol or other drugs, they just are harder cases. Um, and we have to obviously now introduce a whole new set of educational strategies. And it, it's just you know, it's making things even harder. That was a terrible situation already. Spencer Merriweather, when you ran for re-election uh, and, and won in May of last year, you said you would work for a safer county. Uh, can we have a safer county if we don't have the manpower to prosecute, or if the courts are too clogged to handle, or if police view pursuing DWIs to be too cumbersome? No, it's one of the reasons why I know far more about Wake County and Raleigh than I care to is because every waking month we go to Raleigh to talk and try to convince our General Assembly to dedicate more resources to our court system that badly needs it so we can keep our community safe. Is anybody listening? I believe so. Um, I've our business community has really rallied around this effort, uh, as well as uh, a number of uh, folks in other parts of our state, uh, understanding, beginning to understand what why this is a different community uh, than uh, what exists elsewhere in the state. You cannot compare Charlotte to any Charlotte Mecklenburg County, any other jurisdiction in this state. You need to compare it to Nashville, Atlanta, and Jacksonville. Spencer Merriweather, Mecklenburg County's District Attorney, Stephen Burrett, Regional Executive Director of MAD, and Steve Harrison from WFAE News. Thank you all for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.